Hi everyone and welcome to Monday Morning 8am, a podcast from firmsconsulting.com that goes out every Monday morning at 8am for our Insider members and our Slides members. But we make this available to our broader community to get access to the insights we produce every week. As always, we'll go through some of the big business stories and big business issues, distilling just the most important insights that you need to understand to make an impact in your career and the world. So we're starting off today with understanding what is a digital and IT strategy. And there have been a number of news articles that have raised the issues with getting an IT strategy to work. Some of those that come to mind include a piece in the Wall Street Journal that talked about the difficulties that the VW Automotive Group experienced in putting together a program to take on Tesla. That's one piece. Another one is the difficulties retailers have faced in going digital in making sure their e-commerce operations were able to offset the decline in foot traffic based sales. Other examples include how apps have recently struggled that are games based to handle the significant amount of volume coming through with people spending more time at home and obviously spending more time logging onto game based apps. So what this piece raises is that clearly there's a huge focus in the world today on either optimizing a digital and IT strategy or building one if you don't have one in the first place. But irrespective of where you lie on that spectrum of optimization to creating one if you don't have it, just about every single company in the world today needs to have a digital and IT presence, capability or focus. And what's interesting about all these stories is that the companies have always underestimated the difficulties of putting together a coherent IT and digital strategy. It's not such an uncommon problem. Because for every company in a sector or subsector that wins, for every three companies that are seen as the leaders, there are probably 10 other companies that are failing. So the question becomes, what separates those digital strategies of the winners from the digital strategies of the losers. Because if you lay them out side by side, what you'll invariably find is that the strategies look fairly similar. I mean, how many companies have decided that streaming is the way to go for launching video content? Just about everyone's doing it. Obviously, some are winning and some are losing. How many luxury brands companies have decided that e-commerce is the way to go and have shifted the bulk of the development spending to building out well-equipped e-commerce capabilities, all of them. But some are doing better and others are doing worse. In cosmetics, just about everyone is moving towards the influencer model. Some are doing it better, some are doing it worse. So the question becomes, what works and what doesn't work? And how do you distinguish between the two? Well, the big insight here is that for a long time, when you looked at what was best practice in digital, we looked at Silicon Valley. And I think Silicon Valley is, by and large, the best practice in digital in certain areas. In other areas, like in payments, they have fallen behind. But in majority of situations, the methodologies and the techniques and so on they've developed work fairly well. But what large companies are confusing is the maturity of the approach. For example, if you're a two-man or five-man or even 20-man operation, and you use a system whereby you go through multiple iterations, fail numerous times, 
discard ideas, throw out things, rewrite code. It's okay to do that when the base or your sunk costs are so small that it can be done. It's easy to get together 20 people around a table for a startup and quickly change priorities and even rewrite the code because not a lot of code has been written in the first place. But when you have an organization of 10,000 to 60,000 digital practitioners in a large industrial conglomerate, you want to have those lean and agile practices, but you've got to compensate for the fact that it just doesn't work the same. And what you see is companies falling into a trap. The trap they fall into is very simple. They say that, okay, I want to be like Stripe, which is a very good company. And I want to have the same systems and processes they have. Now, Stripe is not such a small company, but they're much smaller than, let's say, what Volkswagen or GM has in terms of their digital organizations. But if a large company fails to replicate each of the attributes that makes a small startup successful, the large company says, okay, what we failed at is we weren't good enough at being small. And the reality is a large company is never going to be good at being small. That's just not possible. You can take some of the attributes and you can infuse it into your culture, but you are never going to act like a small company. And if your lesson from failing to act like a small company is you need to learn to act more like a small company, you will always fail. What it comes down to at the end of the day for a successful digital and IT strategy is you need to figure out how to mobilize the different parts of the organization to produce something that's going to help the organization be successful. I'll give you two examples of this, right? If you are a firm's consulting insider, we have an example of a um, study which you can follow where we are helping an insurance company develop a new digital and IT strategies program. And the idea there they have is that um, they want to use smartphones and iPhone data on consumers to track how they spend their lives. And if, for example, someone walks a lot during a day, it, whether they have a Fitbit band, a smartwatch, an iPhone, doesn't matter what kind of app or system they have collecting the data, that data links into their servers in the cloud somewhere and says that, hey, if Jennifer walked 2,000 steps today, surely her premiums should be less than Michael who walked a negative 10 steps today. We're going to give him a negative 10 steps because somehow we figured out that he's eating whole fat ice cream. The point is, when that study began, it was IT putting this together, right? It was the IT department in the insurance company saying we want to use technology to be better at what we do. But we ran into a hurdle that's very common in companies today, and it's going to exemplify a very important insight here. What is the insight? Let's talk this through. If you have a system that is able to change the amount of money a client that's insured pays per month, for the insurance, the medical insurance, that has profound implications for the, for the business. It changes the entire business model of this company. It doesn't change their, just their IT systems, it changes the business model. Let me give you another example of this to show you the changes, right? This company uses brokers, a massive broker network to sell insurance policies for medical care and insurance. That policy the way it's sold is that someone signs up and they pay for a year's worth of premiums and the broker is then paid a uh, bonus based on the amount the premium was worth for a year. That seems fair enough. Let's assume the premium is worth $2,000 a year. The broker then gets 10% um, of that. But now what happens if the premium is going to change monthly? The company doesn't know how much the total premium in the year is going to be worth. 
So how do they pay the broker the full bonus at the beginning of the policy? And if you can't do that and you got brokers up in arms, you've just changed the entire distribution model of the company. In this situation, the decision to go with this tech platform change has to be a decision that's made at the business level of the company. Because unless the business agrees that this is going to be their new distribution model, and there's just one of the changes introduced by this new way to track data, but unless the business agrees that, unless it compensates for those changes to its business, it can't go ahead with this change to the way it collects data and measures the premiums for clients. So in developing an IT strategy, you always have to start with what are the objectives of the business and what is the business trying to achieve? And you can see I've put in an exhibit here. The exhibit, it comes from our digital and IT strategy journal. Now, for those of you who know firms consulting, you know we have different levels of clients. We have executive coaching clients who are executives in industry. And we also have a, we're now a private equity firm, so we do a lot of private equity work. For those clients in industry who are doing digital work and they are executive coaching clients, obviously it's difficult for me to give them advice in every single call. So what we do is we have these journals on different subjects that give them the guidance they need to solve a problem. We have journals on transformations and turnarounds, competitive strategy, corporate strategy, marketing strategy, digital and IT, a whole spectrum. That is why our executive coaching clients do so well. And that's only for now available to them. So this gives you an idea, this image gives you an idea of how you need to think things through to develop a full digital and IT strategy, but also the tools you would use. Circling back to the story, it's not enough to just say you're going to roll something out. You are rolling out a massive organization-wide change, which is being catalyzed by digital, but it's not led by digital. At the end of the day, the needs of the business still take precedence, and digital and IT must help them achieve that. The next big story we are reading is entitled Synergy is Very Hard to Achieve. And a great piece here is something in the Financial Times, which talks about how Sony, which is a large Japanese entertainment electronics company, has for many years struggled to get Synergy across its various arms. It has the um, Sony entertainment consoles that play computer games, that allows you to play I think the word computer games is a bit outdated, but it allows you to play games on a console or at home on your smart TV. They have a huge music catalog. They have uh, access to uh, intellectual property. Like, for example, the Spider-Man brand is licensed to Sony. They make movies and they now own comics. The challenge that Sony has always experienced, even though it owns a movie studio in the United States, is that it's never been able to get one asset to create value across all of the platforms at once. For example, an example of this would be that, uh, let's just say it launched a great Spider-Man movie. It should theoretically have a great soundtrack to the Spider-Man movie that is generating a lot of money in the music catalog. It should at the same time have a great Spider-Man game that's creating a lot of value in the gaming universe. And it should have a great Spider-Man comic from that story that creates a lot of synergy in the comic world. Synergy is hard to achieve and if you look at any company undertaking an acquisition or merger and so on, a very big part of what they talk about is synergy. So when I was a partner, senior partner, most clients I dealt with, any CEO I would speak to and they want to push together a, a merger or an acquisition, they'd always talk to me about synergies. And this is the thing that you're going to you have to understand about synergies. 
the cost side of synergies is relatively easy to calculate. So when, it, when the CEO is talking about synergies and he says the synergies that we see are worth 800 million a year recurring for five years. If you ask him or her to break this down, you should be very wary of the numbers on the revenue side. Because on the cost side, synergies usually relate to reducing redundancies in positions, merging shared offices that are no longer needed, eliminating duplicate processes, reducing property portfolios that are no longer needed because you may be retrenching staff, merging staff, exiting countries, and so on. So when you look at synergies on the cost side, they're very easy to calculate, but the biggest value should, is really not going to come from the cost side. But then comes the kicker, yeah, maybe the insight of the insight is that calculating the synergies on the revenue is, side is very hard to do. And I'll tell you why in a second. For example, let's assume um, a company went out and bought a um, comic book and then said, okay, on the, on the synergy we see here is that we're going to create a movie from this comic book character. We're going to create a computer game. We're going to create a mu music catalog and we're going to create a theme park. Okay, if that sounds logical, that's what Disney has been doing very successfully. That's what Comcast has been doing very successfully. And there are a few companies in France and Korea and Japan that do that very well as well. The problem with measuring synergy on the revenue side is it's very hard to calculate value objectively from a quality perspective and from a design perspective. So what that means is that even if you acquire a comic book, how do you know you're going to make a blockbuster movie from that comic book? How can you possibly know that? The movie industry is a big gamble whereby you can have the best funding, you can have the best directors and technical talent, but the movie may just not work. Same applies to video games. A video game studio could have everything it needs, but the game could just be a disaster. It could just be too complicated, not appealing, difficult to play, glitches in the software. A theme park could completely fail. It's happened. So. Synergies on the revenue side are hard to calculate because ultimately it comes down to what is quality and what is design. And that is very, very hard to spreadsheet out. It's, I would say it's impossible to spreadsheet out because you just don't know five years projecting into the future which directors you're going to get to do the movies. And even if you get the director you want who has a track record of being successful, they could still fail because they're interpreting a new comic book character and creating a new universe. So when you think about synergies, always split them down between cost and revenue, but remember the revenue side is where most of, I would think, the difficulties take place. The next big story is the delicate balance needed in a turnaround. And of course, there's many, many interesting pieces going on in the world today about companies facing turnaround problems, whether they're banks like Wells Fargo, to large retailers, most retailers are struggling, to beverage companies, to food companies. Everyone at some point is struggling in every sector, but now it's pronounced with COVID-19. So let's talk about what is happening in turnarounds and why they are so difficult and maybe some pieces that people are, being, are missing. The first important thing to understand in a turnaround is that ultimately it's a corporate strategy with a gun to your head. Because in a turnaround, you have a limited time to respond, right? So you have to do three things. You've got to immediately cut costs. As soon as you come in, you've got to slash costs. Because what happens in a turnaround, when employees know and suppliers know that a company is going through a turnaround, they know that 
the company is usually not paying that much attention. So when I was a senior partner, and I did a lot of turnarounds actually. The first thing you would do is you must know fraud is taking place. It doesn't matter whether there's no evidence. It is taking place because that's human nature. The first thing you want to do is to impose very strict capital controls. Everything needs to be stopped and anything that needs to go out in terms of cash needs to get approval from somebody that is set up to check these things. That's very important. That's the first thing you have to do. The second thing you have to do is, and this is the hard part, you've got to figure out which businesses you're going to keep that have a chance to grow at a rate sufficient enough to pay off the cost of capital and make this worthwhile. So you have to choose the business you want to be in. You want to choose where in the value chain you need to play, what you're going to offer in that part of the value chain, who your customers are going to be, how you're going to make money, which is your business model, and how you're going to do all of this against some very, very aggressive and difficult competitors. And we know they're aggressive and difficult because you're in a turnaround. If you are doing a good job, you would not be in a turnaround. And then the third thing you have to do is you have to figure out which parts of the businesses you want to close and or sell. And it sounds easy, but selling and closing is actually pretty difficult because you've got union issues to deal with. You've got liabilities to ring fence. You've got to decide if the business needs to be fixed before it can be closed and sold. Fixing it, you have to figure out whether the cost to fix it or the investment to fix it makes sense. Three steps. But what makes this interesting is that it becomes a bit of a delicate dance here. Because obviously, if you look at the second step, you have to invest, right? That's important. And usually the costs you are cutting in step one, you, you're going to take that saving and invest. It's probably not going to be enough. You probably have to raise some capital or something like that. But it's a cash flow balancing act. Because typically when you're in this position, it's hard to raise capital. So you've got to make sure that while you're doing all of this, you have sufficient cash. So for example, if you are cutting your costs, you can cut a lot of costs, but not that much relative to the investments you make. So you have to figure out, okay, I need to make investments in two areas. One is I've got to make investments in figuring out which businesses to grow and how to grow them, and then figuring out which businesses I'm going to sell and how to invest in them to turn them around to sell them for the best price. But you're low on cash, so you can't make all of the investment needed. So you have to figure out a critical path here. What is the minimum investment I can make now to get me to step two of the 10 or 15 step process such that the businesses I want to be in and the businesses I want to keep make sufficient money? That's the hard part. It's about staggering the cash flow investments so that the returns also come back and balance out the cash going out. And that's the part most companies get wrong. That's the part most companies struggle with. So insiders, you can see this with the Corporate Strategy and Transformation Program, which is basically a turnaround of a power utility which is going through some very wrenching and difficult issues. But you always have to remember it's a balancing act. It's a balancing act whereby if you get the balance wrong, if you spend too much in the businesses you want to keep, but you spend so much so far ahead that the return only comes back a year or two years down the line, you could run out of cash. If you spend too much in fixing a business you plan to sell, but you either spend it too early or more than you need to spend, and you can only sell the company two or three years down the line, you've got a cash problem. It's always that cash flow balancing act. So in a turnaround, you have to do all those wonderful things about cutting costs and figuring out where to grow and figuring what to sell, but the tension is managing the cash flow. The other big piece we're reading is about um, 
competition. And the point I wanna make here is that competition is very, very hard to understand because no one knows what their competitors are thinking. Competitors by and large send signals into the market to mislead their peers. A great piece was Samsung's recent announcement that they're looking to make a $17 billion chip fabrication investment in the United States. And that's a pretty big investment. And that was announced through the Wall Street Journal. Clearly, Samsung is sending a message to competitors telling them, look, we've got a $17 billion foundry coming online. So you guys out there, our competitors need to decide, do you feel confident enough that if you make a similar investment that then floods the market with chips, A, it's not going to lead to a decrease in price. B, maybe it will cause competitors to leave us Samsung and go to you. Or C, the market's big enough to handle all of the supply coming online. That's pure competitive strategy, right? It doesn't get more challenging than that. And the thing about competitive strategies, you really don't know what to do, but you can break this problem down. I'll give you another example of this. Let's assume you're a rice company and you operate in the premium segment. And you've by and large exited the um, value segment, low cost segment. But you've noticed over years, a lot of new players have entered the premium, the, the low cost segment, value segment, and they have decided that they being the low cost players, a few of them have decided to consolidate the sector. So now you've got four low cost players and there's three premium players. And you've noticed over the last few years that the market shares have remained largely static in the value segment, but the overall market in the value segment is growing so that these low cost players are generating a lot of cash. They're low cost, they have lean operations. The margins are not high, but given the volumes they have, it's fairly significant. Now here's the challenge here. And this is what makes comparative strategy so interesting, and this is the insight. As a premium player, you have to decide if you want to defend your space. That's your option one, saying, I think the value players at some stage are going to see the margins in the premium space and they're going to come for it with a new brand. So we got to brace ourselves for this. we got to prepare for an attack. That's option one. Option two is you do nothing. You think, well, nothing's going to happen. We just do what we're always doing and everyone's going to be happy. Option three, you say, you know what? The fight's going to come our way. That's option one. You're going to be attacked. But the question is, if the fight's going to come our way, do we fight on our turf, which is wait for them to enter premium, or do we take the fight to them and enter the market with a value product in the value segment of the rice market to compete against them? That's a difficult decision to make. But here's the insight, and it's a very deep insight. When companies do this, they generally, most of them, there are some exceptions, but most of them fail. And we've seen this in the airline industry for many years. National carriers meaning carriers that were mandated by the government to, to provide aviation services, generally have bloated infrastructures, they're semi or currently state-owned, and they, they're not cost-efficient. So what they've done is largely they've launched a low-cost competitor to compete against other privately-owned low-cost players. And their rationale is very simple. They say, hey, low-cost players are making a ton of money. At some point, they're going to attack us on our long-haul routes. So let's create a low-cost player to take them on. But they fail. These things always fail. And why do they fail? What's the insight here? The insight is this. Just building a low-cost company or a low-cost brand on the infrastructure of a high-cost brand means the low-cost brand is basically going to be a facade. 
It may get some things right of the low-cost brand, but by and large, the culture, the thinking, the sourcing, the procurement, the staffing, the organizational structure is a legacy of the high-cost brand. And unless it's a complete separation, unless you have management that can force a clean separation and protect the integrity of the low-cost brand, the low-cost prayer ultimately fails. But there's a deeper insight here. And the deeper insight is that if you are a high-cost player, premium player, one option is you enter the low-cost space, value space, not with a goal to keep it a low-cost category, but to make it more premium. So you educate the consumer and make them more willing to pay for a more or slightly more expensive version of the value brand, which is what you're doing here is you're basically educating consumers to not buy the cheap product. We've seen this extensively, and a great example of this is the rise of organic products, right? We've seen Costco do this very successfully, whereby they enter the organic space, but then they started introducing organic products in the low cost space, but those organic products are slightly more expensive than the low cost products, which means that they're educating the consumer to say, you know what, my health is, matters to me, and I must pay a little bit more. That's how you gotta think about how to respond. It's very difficult to change who you are and just launch a low cost or high cost product. But you can take what makes you good and educate consumers and thereby raise the value of a low cost category. The alternative also works. If you're a low cost player, you can enter a high cost category and show consumers, you know what, you're overspending. What you want, we can give it to you, but at a slightly lower discount. So as a brand, our overall margins increase, but we're stealing share from other players. That's been a very successful company uh, strategy for automotive companies. So finally, I want to end off with some thoughts on developing a career strategy for an executive. You know, most of our clients are actually fairly successful, at least to people who look at them. They're fairly senior. They're, you know, 30 to 40, some of them up to 50. And they're senior managers, executive managers, executive vice presidents. Some of them are CEOs. But either they they are not as successful as they want to be, not as successful as they could be, but they're trapped. They're trapped because they know they're not as successful as they can be. But people looking outside in see them as successful. So these guys and girls have the resources and certainly the time to plot out a new career strategy, but they don't know what to do. As opposed to what I call more younger people, whereby because they're so young in their careers, they always have more room to grow. But when you get to 30 to 50, you kind of get stuck in a certain point. But a lot of our clients are stuck at a good point in their career. But the difference is it's good when people look outside in. But our clients feel they are not where they need to be. They're not doing their life's work. They're not as successful as they could be. They're not leveraging the skills they either have or they feel they should, could, and will eventually learn. With most clients in our executive coaching program, we have something called the Career Strategy Journal which maps out how they need to plan their careers. So I'm going to talk you through some of those insights that is in the career strategy journal that's only available to executive coaching clients. I'll talk about um, two things here. The first one is let's look at a, um, any senior client, right? So let's say 35, 40, maybe it's a, it's a partner at a consulting firm. We have a lot of partners at McKinsey and so on who are clients or a senior executive in industry. That's also a common group for us. By and large, when you're at that level, you are not doing the work yourself. You know, whenever I meet 
a client who tells me that, oh, they're so busy, they need to put together a report, and they're at that level of the company, there's clearly a problem there. When you're at that senior level, you are not doing the work yourself. You have to be getting other people to do the work. So the first thing is that you've got a system problem here. Why are you doing the work? Your job is to manage the organization and take it to the next level. Your job is not to do the work. And if you're caught in this mindset trap whereby you say that, oh, I just have to do the work to show people how to do and take it to the next level. When I get there, I will stop doing the work. You're never going to get to that level. So let's talk about a system here, right? So I was talking to a client recently. And this client was not in the coaching program. They were in the advice sessions, which is different. Coaching sessions have a long backlog to get into the program. Advice sessions, if we have time, we talk to some clients. And I was teaching him how to create a system if you're in sales for a technology company. And what I told him, I asked him, how do you spend your day? You know, how do you spend your month? What are you going to do in three months? What are you going to do in four months? What are you going to do in five months? And he said, I don't know. It depends what people tell me I need to do. It depends what opportunities come up. And that's the problem. You don't have a system. When I was a, a junior partner and I became senior partner, there's a reason I became a junior partner. And there's a reason I became a senior partner because I had a system. So what was my system? Obviously, as a partner, I need to bring in money to the firm. We don't ever talk about sales as you know, partners in elite consulting firms, but that's what we have to do. But I created a pretty good system that um, a lot of other partners eventually liked to replicate. So what I did is I had seven clients, seven clients that I dealt with. And then I had time to kind of deal with five other clients where my partner would invite me in to talk to them. Or someone would reach out to me directly because they heard about some of the work I'd done. But I had seven core clients. These were multi-billion dollar conglomerates in the resources sector uh, and banking, right? And government as well. So what was my system? My system was very, very simple. I did a visioning strategy visioning workshop every client once a year. So once a year, I'd get together the executive committee and the CEO of each of my seven clients, and I'd run a workshop for them. The workshop was split into two parts. Part in the morning, the workshop was what's happening? What's the latest big issues, trends, discontinuities, and changes happening in your sector. And I'd bring in some other partners to talk and present the work and so on. After lunch, we then have a workshop where we'd either do a scenario planning session, we'd do a value chain mapping exercise, we'd do, if it was digital and IT strategy clients, we would talk about what should be the digital and IT strategy. And at the end of that workshop, the client would always, always, always figure out that they're missing something, there's a little bit of a lack of alignment between operations and strategy or digital and strategy or operations and digital. There's a priority they miss. There's a part of the value chain they're missing. But notice what I've done here. I don't go to clients and say, you know what? We think there's an opportunity for you to acquire a company. So let's put together a proposal to help you do that. No, because if you get locked into a cycle whereby you're only talking to clients, when you know and they know you want to sell them something, it becomes awkward. But if you're telling a client, we're going to do a workshop for you. It's going to cost you just a little bit of money. It's compared to the overall fees we charge them. It is a little bit of money. And to be honest, sometimes I do it for free, usually for free. But it's not to help us. It's to help you. It's to do a refresher, to just get away from everything. Let's go to a nice fancy resort somewhere by the beach, you know, drink Mai Tais, eat some grilled prawns with you know, fat little clipping claws at the front. And we're going to do this workshop to get you to think and refresh yourself. What I get out of this is a one day with the entire executive committee. I get them to tell me what the issues are. And then naturally, the follow-up is myself and the other partners will follow through on this. Now, people for a long time ask me, why do you only have seven clients? And that's the answer, seven, because I can do one workshop every month and have five other months in the year for other things that come up. And usually I'll do a workshop for five other clients who I've never served before. I want to serve. I want to help another partner serve. So 
I would fly to Brazil. I would go to Chile. I'd go to Argentina. I'd go to Botswana. I'd go to uh, the UK. I would go to parts of Asia, Australia. So I know what my year is going to be like. There's no surprises. I know that this is my system. My system is 12 major visioning workshops. But as you get to senior levels, in fact, you, you should be doing this at every level of your career, you need to have a system in place so that your diary and your agenda is not just, oh my God, I'm gonna get up early in the morning, go to the office and talk to someone and look for opportunities. Yeah, you, you need to do that, but you need to do that within your system. So I would have a visioning workshop with a client and look for opportunities within that client and I'd pay attention for it, but my system was 12 workshops a year. And it was a very successful system. Firms Consulting also has a system. Think about it, right? If we are looking at private equity investments and something comes up and we, we partner with someone, it's gonna be very tiring for us partners to have to get involved in developing the e-commerce plan for some company we're working with or some acquisition or something like that. That's why we have all these journals we've produced. If we have a portfolio company that's dealing with competitors, that team gets a copy of the competitive strategy journal so they can see exactly how to go about thinking through and responding to this. Well, they will have many different opportunities in corporate strategy, restructuring and transformation and turnarounds. We have a turnaround and restructuring journal, which shows you step by step what you need to do to think through how to develop a turnaround strategy. If we have a portfolio company that needs to come up with a marketing strategy, how do you actually do that? We have a marketing strategy journal. But we don't just have journals, right? That's our system. Again, we're talking about systems. So we create a system of having these journals, which allows us to push out work a lot faster to the portfolio companies. But we also have something called strategy value blueprints. What is a strategy value blueprint? Let's assume we're dealing with an e-commerce company that we, we've just taken over. A strategy value blueprint is a set of steps that you need to follow to achieve an increase in revenue and reduction in costs and the building of a sustainable brand. So if we had to take over, for example, as we're now doing building a luxury brand's business in Europe, we would be able to tell the people running that, look, step one, you need to go to these websites and create this account. Step two, this is the template and guide. This is the text you need to use to create your first ad. Step three, this is the copy in the ad you need to run. Step four, this is where you need to point people to from the ad. Step three, this is what you need to collect from people. Step four, once you collect their the contact details, this is the first thing you send them. This is the second thing you send them. This is the third thing you send them. Step five, how many or what metric must you hit before you can launch a product? Step four, how do you develop that product? So everything is broken down. We call that strategy value blueprints. So why am I telling you this? It's an example of telling you how to create a system. I've given you different examples of how to create systems, but that's what you need to focus on in your career. You always need a system. And as always, I look forward to seeing you next week, Monday morning at 8 a.m. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com.
It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.